Women have been playing football for more than 150 years, and it's always been political. Some have been celebrated, but others have been ridiculed, criticized, and forgotten. This is the Forgotten 11, the hidden history of women's football. I'm not going to the White House. No. You know, there was a lot of critics talking about us, but we're back, so it's not been that long. <laughs> Give me the effing ball. Playing like a girl means you're a badass. Welcome to the Forgotten 11. I'm Chris. If you like the show, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ForgottenXI, leave a review, and share on social media. Before we start today, I'd like to thank Stuart Gibbs for his book, Lady Players, The Strange Birth of Women's Football. Most of this episode comes from that book, which you can find at lesportelafemme.de. And just a heads up, aside from Stuart Gibbs' book, the rest are in German. So if you'd like to become my German tutor, please get in touch. One thing about lost history is that you'll get things wrong. You have to guess. Hopefully an educated guess sometimes. So for example, do you remember the Walton Cup? Well, I'm pretty sure it was called the Weldon Cup. And I don't know who played in that cup, but some of the women's teams in England did in fact play to benefit striking minors. Okay, a minor mistake. The thing is, though, when you find out you're wrong, usually it means you found the truth and more of the story. Remember Mrs. Graham? Turns out, in 1881, she was probably about 10 years old. So who played those matches in 1881? Who organized them? In the spring of 1881, there's a mystery in Glasgow, Scotland, perhaps even a scandal. Near the Tron Church, there's a large event hall. By April, something is happening at that hall, and no one seems to know what it is. But the people of Glasgow have seen things, strange things, and there are rumors. It seems that a group of young women are living at the hall, and each day, more and more women join them. What are they doing in there? By the end of the month, the Glasgow Evening News and Star sees fit to go and investigate exactly what these women are up to. On April 29th, 1881, the newspaper reports that the young women at the hall intend to play a football match, and are using the hall to practice their footballing skills. More on these women in a moment. A little background here. It seems that football arrived in Scotland in the late 1860s. And it quickly became a national obsession. FIFA recognizes the first men's international match as one played between England and Scotland in 1872. Although England and Scotland had played each other as early as 1870. And this earliest international rivalry was pretty popular. Crowds of thousands would watch. And while the English FA existed in 1870, football was still a bit like the Wild West. In the early 1870s, Scotland didn't quite have an official football association. And the English FA had yet to become the absolute authority in everything football. 
Through the 1870s, the England and Scotland matches grow in popularity. Tens of thousands of English and Scottish fans turn out to watch the matches. In the 1870s, Alexander, or Alec, Gordon operated a few theaters in Scotland. And several of his acting companies had toured the British Isles with some minor success. By 1880, though, he was not doing well. He tried acting, and well, he wasn't very good on stage. But he had an idea. He just needed a financial backer to get started, and he figured he could find some financial success. And he did find a backer, though perhaps not the best one. Charles Henry Scholes and his wife Nancy, beginning in the 1850s, created something of a theater empire. They operated theaters in Blackburn, Chester, Bolton, St. Helens, Wigan, and Birkenhead. Charles was somewhat unsociable and preferred to just do business, while his wife Nancy seems to be more of the public face of the empire. But by 1880, the Shoals Theater Empire is in debt. In June, they were put into administration, which is basically bankruptcy. Their debts are around 2,500 pounds, which 140 years ago is a huge amount of money. And administration also means that someone else starts running the finances at your business until you pay back your debt. So Charles and Nancy Scholes need some quick cash to save their theater business. Alec Gordon's idea was simple. Stage an international football match between England and Scotland. But have women play the match. Charles Scholes, when he heard this idea, signed up with little hesitation and pulled in one of his best theater managers, a man who went by the name George Frederick Charles, and I have to point out that almost no one in this story uses their real names. Frederick Charles was actually George Charles Imbert. They're all theater people, so I guess they get to use stage names. In April of 1881, Gordon, Scholes, and Imbert appear in Glasgow and rent a large hall near the Tron Church. With them are a group of female actors who begin to practice their football. Other actors soon arrive, both Scottish actors and English actors, hidden away in this hall practicing their football. Gordon, Scholes, and Imbert begin searching for a ground to play their matches on. Finding a ground proved difficult. Basically, no clubs wanted to be associated with a women's match, possibly because they didn't want to risk being involved in an untried venture but just as likely it was sexism. The old Glasgow Rangers initially offered their ground at Kenning Park, but later withdrew because they had to play a rematch there on the same day. At this point, Charles Scholes had to call on some old theater contacts. Turns out Hibernian's ground at Easter Road was available, and Hibernian's board of directors were at least partly theater folks who knew Scholes. They knew he needed some help. So the match was set for May 7th, 1881 at Easter Road. So let's meet the players. For Scotland, we have from back to front, Ethel Hay, Bella Osborne, 
Georgina Wright, Rose Raynham, Isis Stevenson, Emma Wright, Louise Cole, Lily, Lily St. Clair, Maud Rimford, Carrie Baloyo, Minnie Breimner. And for England, we have Mary Goodwin, Mabel Hopewell, or Bradbury, Maud Starling, Ada Everston, Geraldine Vintner, Mabel Vance, Kate Malore, Eva Davenport, Minnie Hopewell, and Nellie Sher Sherwood. Except most of them, if not all, were using their former stage names, or new stage names. And it seems a bit odd to me that they would all be willing to drop their acting careers and try football, but there's a little story to that too. A woman named Eliza Savage ran a ballet company called Lizzie Gilbert's Juvenile Ballet Troupe. Lizzie Gilbert was Eliza Savage's stage name. See how this kind of gets confusing? In the fall of 1880, she dissolved the troupe and went to train a new group of dancers. This left the ballerinas unemployed. But Alec Gordon, through their agents in London, was able to persuade them to give football a shot. Most of them had a fair part of a month to train at this hall. On the 6th of May, being from the theater, the women had a dress rehearsal match at a pitch that would later become home to Hyde Park Thistle. The Evening News and Star commented that the women had played well. So they were ready for the next day when they would play the first organized formal women's international football match. Sunday morning, May 7th, 1881. The English and Scottish women's teams start their four-hour journey to the pitch at Easter Road in Glasgow. Their uniforms are hidden under their coats. 2,000 spectators are waiting for them, but they're mostly men. In the 1870s, clubs offered cheap or free tickets to women in the stands, hoping that the women's presence would calm the male fans and keep them a bit better behaved. But for this match, there was no discount for women at all. And that probably explains why there were few, if any, women in the stands. The Scottish team wore blue, and the English wore red and blue. Some accounts have claimed that they wore bonnets and long sleeves, but there's a contemporary account that says some players played with no sleeves. Either way, it seems that each player was free to modify their kit to suit their taste and comfort. And here's a fun historical fact about the mildly bonkers match that followed. <clears throat> Until the 1890s, the managers, or another club member, would be on the field acting as referees. A third neutral official would be on the sidelines to settle disputes between the refs. So Alec Gordon acted as the ref for the Scottish side, and George Imbert refed for the English. In the 1890s, the neutral ref moved onto the field as head ref, and the managers moved to the sidelines to become what we now call linesmen and lineswomen. But back to the match. It started at 3.30. The English side initially pressed hard and pushed the Scottish team deep into their own half. The crowd was excited, although critical, of the play. 30 minutes into the game, Lily St. Clair for Scotland broke through the English defense 
and netted a goal for her side and became the first recorded goal scorer in women's football. Well done, Lily. Their goal invigorated the Scots and they pushed hard for the rest of the first half. In the second half, both teams seemed to become fully comfortable with this new football thing. They were now playing a much rougher, uninhibited game with more tackles and tumbles. Around an hour in, Louise Cole scored a second for Scotland. And shortly after, an assist from Isis Stevenson set up Maud Ranford for third. The papers reported that most of the crowd had left by the final whistle. The ones who stayed were mostly there to harass the players after the match. And if Charles Scholes wanted to make money off of women's football, he should have bought a newspaper. There was quite a lot of debate about women's football in Scotland. And that debate was picked up around the world. Sydney, Australia, Perth, New Zealand, Toronto, New York, Cape Town, Salt Lake City, all restored it all reprinted stories from the Scottish papers. Okay, if you remember the first version of this account, back from the first or second episode, I mentioned the rational dress movement, which advocated for women wearing comfortable clothes. Part of the reason people for so long associated women's football with feminist causes, and this match in particular, with the rational dress movement, was that they arrived in Scotland within weeks of each other. And the papers were covering both at the same time. So, politics by association. Their next match was played on Monday the 16th of May at 7.30 p.m. at Shawfield Ground in Rutherglen near Glasgow. Only a few hundred people paid to get in, and they were quite critical of the referees. According to the spectators, Alec Gordon and George Imbert knew less about the game than the players, which is likely true. Just outside the stadium, on a bridge, a crowd formed. These folks were upset at the cost of entry, and about 20 minutes into the match, they stormed the gates and occupied a section of the stands. They were a rough bunch, and they began fighting and cursing. This included a group of women called the Rutherglen Mill Girls, presumably because they worked at a mill. These women became the first female football hooligans. Maybe the refs were worried about this new crowd. The first half ended with no goals. About 10 minutes into the second half, the rougher crowd began invading the pitch, pulling out fence posts and intimidating the players. It seems that the paying crowd and a few cops helped beat a path for the players to get to their transport. It was right around the time of this second match that a bill passed in Scotland that gave women the right to vote in local elections. So while the papers were covering women voting, they were also covering this women's match that more or less ended in a riot. Once again, the players were associated with politics simply by being covered at the same time. Within two weeks of this match and the pitch invasion, Scotland banned women from playing, believing that it would lead to more disorder and rioting. Charles Scholes was a clever guy. After the Scottish ban, the teams went south to England, 
And he somehow convinced Blackburn Olympic to let the women use their somewhat sloping field and use the hole-in-the-wall pub as a changing room. This match, probably on May 21st, saw an amazing crowd of 4,000. The women had found a bit more resolve for this match, and the first half was quite rough. One unnamed player had to leave the pitch with a gash in her head. The papers claimed one of the English players could have dominated the match with a little more help, and a Scottish player was praised for her skill. Towards the end of the match, mayhem in front of the Scottish goal means that no one figured out who scored for England. England won 1-0. After the match, there was a milder pitch invasion, but it seems the players got to their changing room without incident. The teams then traveled to Manchester and probably set themselves up as they had in Glasgow, a large venue to practice in, which doubled as a home. Scholes and Gordon continued to struggle to find grounds to play on, and there are at least two matches that the teams failed to appear at. But on May 30th, they played a match in Sheffield in front of about a thousand people. The papers just say that England won two to one. On the 3rd of June, the teams made it to Liverpool. Weirdly, football hadn't really caught on there yet, and the ground was a decent walk from the town. So the turnout was a bit low, but the papers this time describe the different player styles. Eva Davenport scored early for England. In the last minutes of the game, Louise Cole leveled for Scotland. The papers were finally analyzing the player's skill and noting their different styles of play. Athletic News said, although altogether the match was a great success, although the attendance was not so large as might have been expected to witness such a novelty. The next play on the 13th of June at Windhill outside Manchester. And here the papers are perhaps being won over. One says, Football by la the lady players is certainly an innovation to cause some astonishment, but there was nothing in the playing yesterday evening to which any great objection could be taken. It also appears that the teams are now playing fully by association rules. This match seems well attended, and the crowd was enthusiastic. Scotland beat England 3-2. On the 20th, 21st, and 22nd of June, the teams attempted to play at Cheatham. The first ended in a pitch invasion after 30 minutes. The second match, they hired more security, but this only held the invaders until the 55th minute and it's not clear if they played the third match. On the 25th and 26th of June, they played again in Liverpool, and Scotland won 2-0 and 2-1. Charles Scholes, at this point, had made enough money to get his theaters out of administration, and that's what he did. Alec Gordon moved to Ireland, and with his women's football money, he bought his own theater there. George Imbert opened a boarding house in Blackburn. The players returned to their stage careers. And that was the end. Or it wasn't. In the spring of 1882, two people named J and W. Wilder were holding an event, and they specifically asked for the female footballers to join them. 
The teams came back for at least one more match on April 26th, 1882. And that was the end. Oh, there's a team called Grimsey Ladies FC in 1885. And we have some records of them playing in 1887 against themselves and against a team called Edinburgh Ladies FC. So there's at least four teams playing in Scotland and England in the 1880s. Huh. Thanks for listening, as always. Don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at ForgottenXI. Leave a review if you can, uh, and share with your friends. Until next time.